Let's pray. Father, thank you. You've given us another day. We want to thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for this time. We pray, Father, that you would guide and direct, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, hearts that understand what it is you have for us individually this morning and as a body, as a church. We commit this time to you, Father. We thank you. We pray by your Holy Spirit you would come, that you would dwell among us, that you would illuminate your word, that you would drive these precious truths home to our hearts. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll try to uh, grumble through here. Still a little hoarse from the the flu, but um, praise God over it. So that's good. Been about four weeks since we've been in the Gospel of John, and I've missed it. Uh, Enjoyed uh, Pastor Mark's study in Joshua last week. Uh, I was watching from home and uh, enjoying the, uh, the live stream, the feed. Uh, and it was just a good, good study, good reminder of those things that God plants those memorials in our lives. I love the little pile of rocks here in front. That was great. Object lessons. Prior to that, it had been uh, three weeks, uh, or yeah, four weeks ago today. It was the last time we were in John, and we, we talked about the triumphal entry in Jesus when he presented himself as Messiah to Israel. And then uh, we looked at the resurrection and went back into the Old Testament and pulled some things out of Exodus and Leviticus and came back and applied uh, actually the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant to the tomb of Christ and looked at that. And then um, Mark came and shared with us. And then uh, today we're back in John chapter 6. As we've been looking at John chapter 6, we're seeing some remarkable things taking place. We saw at the beginning of this chapter where Jesus feeds, in the text says, 5,000 men. And so we can assume that there were probably about 15,000 people. And uh, he takes and he takes a little boy's sack lunch. Didn't have a sack, but he takes a little boy's lunch and five barley loaves, poor people's food, and three fish, little sardine-like fish that they were common in the Sea of Galilee. Goes up on, I believe it was Mount Arbel, which is just north of the city of Tiberias, uh, there on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, and uh, and not a lot of places fit. And if it's not that, then I'll find out when we get there. And I don't think anybody's going to lose their salvation over it. But uh, it makes sense that it was there uh, for a number of reasons. Don't need to go into that again. Well, that night he, well, it, and remember the crowd, they wanted to come and they wanted to make him king. By force, take him and sack him, put him up on their shoulders and cart him off to Jerusalem and, and install him as their king because he fed them. And Jesus perceived that. He understood what was going on and he dismissed the crowds. He said, go, we're done, we're finished, go. And then he dismisses his disciples. We remember we we blended the four gospels. It's it's the only miracle that's in all four gospels. And we blended those and and looked at different things. And and he actually made his men get into the boat and he said, now go, I'll see you tomorrow in Capernaum. So, you know, he's good. Then he goes up on the mountain to pray. And we see there that he watched his disciples as they go out in the lake. They get in this huge storm. And here's a bunch of professional fishermen that were very used to fishing on that lake. And they're fearful for their lives. So a big storm. Second storm they'd been in. The first storm, he was asleep in the back of the boat. Uh, It tells us in the other gospels. And 
so we looked at that as Storms 101, and this was Storms 102, where Jesus is not in the boat now. He is outside of the boat, and they're straining at the oars all night long. It talks about it being the fourth watch of the night, which would be between 3 and 6 a.m. So they had been in the boat all night, working at the oars, trying to get to the other side. It's about a five and a half mile straight line between uh, Mount Arbel and Capernaum. So it wasn't that far, but for them, it was forever. And then they see Jesus strolling to them across the sea. He just decides to take a walk like Jesus does. <laughs> and um, it actually scares them to death. They think he's a ghost. And the minute he gets in the boat, the boat's at the, at the shore. And so we looked at that. And then uh, the last time that we got together and looked at the Gospel of John, we see that Jesus is now in Capernaum with his guys. And the crowd came out. They went back to Mount Arbel to look for him the next day because they were, after all, kind of hungry. And uh, this guy had fed them miraculously. And, and food is a big deal for these people. So they go looking for him. They don't see the boat there where his disciples were. And there was no other boats there. And, so, and they don't see Jesus there. So they, some other guys come up from Tiberias and they have boats and they hop in their boats and some people walk around the lake and some people come across the lake in boats. So a, a huge crowd of people shows up in Capernaum, sort of chasing Jesus down now because he is immensely popular with the people. Again, they have a, 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 I've talked about it a number of times, their view of him was falling short. We talked about that, talked about the fact they wanted a bread god more than a storm God. And he is the God of the storms far more than he's the God of bread and, uh, and our provision. We'll talk about that more as we go this morning because we're going to look at the true bread. Uh, and so anyway, the, he gets there and he gets around to the other side and the people come to him now. And uh, it says that they come up to him and they say, how did you get here? And he doesn't answer them. He just says, you seek me for the wrong reasons. And um, I'm going to take, all right, let me back up a little bit. You guys have heard me talk about the way I like to study, as I call it, zoom in, zoom out. Ever have a telephoto lens on a camera? You can twist the lens and it just brings everything up close. And, and then you can, you can get detail. I mean, I love high-definition television. You can see how many whiskers is on, are on that football player's face. I mean, it's amazing, the definition, the, the clarity that you can get by zooming up. But then there are also times where it's very beneficial to zoom out. And I want to zoom out a little bit here as we catch up in the Gospel of John. My wife's looking innocent. She's laughing about something. I'll find out later. But you... As we zoom out, I want to take a look at this whole passage. This passage is 71 verses long. This chapter is. And so in order for us to understand the context, which is all important, you've heard me talk about that before, a text without a context is a con. I love that ditty. But it's true because we can pull all kinds of things out of context and end up with some pretty goofy ideas. And Jesus is actually in this chapter correcting people because they had taken him out of context. But the point is, is now we're going to zoom out. I'm going to catch us up 
I'm going to start in verse 26, and you don't have to follow that. It's not in the slides. Uh, we're going to actually start the slides at verse 47, but just so that we can get the flow of what's going on here, I want to look briefly at the dialogue that Jesus has with the people, because this is an exchange. The other Gospels, by the way, don't record this lengthy exchange that's going on here between Jesus and the people, not just the religious leaders, but the people in general. So remember, he starts with 5,000 people the day before, and there are a bunch of people now on this side of the lake. 5,000? It doesn't say how many, but there would be at least hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands, that are now chasing him around the lake, uh, trying to get him to do their bidding, and they sort of got things backwards. So in verse 26, and I'm going to paraphrase, so bear with me on that. Um, he, essentially, he tells them, they say, well, you know, how'd you get here? And he doesn't answer their question. He just makes a comment. He says, you're seeking me not because you saw the sign. Implied in that and its significance, you know, the word sign is part of the word significant because the sign is supposed to be significant in pointing to something. Interesting, what happens often is people want to, and I want to say this right, there is a, there is a healthy place for interpreting the Bible. Um, uh, the first rule of her hermeneutics, which is the science of Bible study, is observe, interpret, and apply. Observe, interpret, and apply. Observe, interpret, apply. You don't depart from that. You observe the text, you interpret the text in light of the, the four contexts I use, uh, and then you apply what's being said. How does that fit the church in general? How does that fit me in particular? And what's happening here with the people, those signs are supposed to point to something about Jesus, and they're, they're making it about them. And, and, and yeah, there's a place for personal application, but when he says, I'm the bread of life, he is, he's, he's revealing something about who he is, who God is, God in the flesh, about his mission, about what he's here to do, and, and the fact that he is our, our ultimate sustenance. And, and, and so he wants these people to make the jump from seeing that he provides bread to seeing that he really is the Messiah. He really does have the ability to forgive sins. He really is all-powerful. He really does have the details of my life handled but they're not going there. They're making it about their bellies. And, and he says, you seek me not because you saw the sign and its significance, but because you ate the sign. And that's essentially what's being said here. You know, he's, you, didn't, you didn't even go any further than that. You didn't use that to identify something about me. You identified something about you, which is you're hungry. And it's understandable on human terms, and in human terms, and, and Jesus understands that this is where these people are going with this, but it's not his ultimate goal. We've got to understand that so often when we look in circumstances in our lives, we see what's going on. It breaks my heart, guys, when I hear somebody that's going through tough circumstances say, I think God's mad at me. It breaks my heart. Why? Because if you've given your life to Jesus, he will never be mad at you, ever. He made a covenant with you. And he said, I'm going to pour out my love on your life every day, every moment, whether you're sinning or not sinning, he's not mad at you. He may correct you he, because he's a good dad. And he may, you may end up going to the woodshed with dad. 
I mean, Hebrews 12 says that. He says, you know, he, the Lord chastises every son whom he receives and daughter. He does. But it's a total misunderstanding of the person of God to, to think he's mad at you. Now, if you don't know the Lord, yeah, he's mad. And as a matter of fact, you actually continue to store up wrath for yourself until you turn the corner and say, you know what? I need Jesus. I need Jesus way more than I ever thought I did. And I need to give him my life because he laid his down for me. So this, this whole thing, he's saying, you guys ate the sign. And he says, don't work for temporary food. Don't work for food that perishes. But for food that's eternal in its nature, for enduring food, for food that endures to eternal life, he says. So he's, and he's trying to jack their perception of him higher. But it's not working yet, and, and we'll see as we go along. So he says, work for what I'll give you. We talked about that last time. It's an interesting play on words because salvation is a free gift. You don't have to do anything but believe. But he says, work for the food that I will give you. And it's an interesting thing because he's saying, essentially, that stuff's going to go. The minute you finish your work, the minute you get that paycheck, how long does your paycheck last? Mine doesn't last anywhere near as long as I'd like for it to. But how long does his food last? Forever. There's a whole different deal, a whole different thing he's putting forth to these people. So the people then, they respond with, well, what do we do to do the works of God? And he says, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he sent. So the people's response, uh, which is classic, is okay, well, prove yourself to us so we can believe you. After all, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they, they hit him with that. And, and essentially, they're bringing it back to food. In other words, you know, we ate yesterday and our fathers ate manna, Jesus, in the wilderness. If you're this true food from heaven, then it's about time for us to eat. They're, they're, they're trying to coax him into doing their thing, to doing their bidding. Jesus' response to them is interesting. He says, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And he's the one that gives you true bread from heaven. Not this stuff that falls six days a week. You get twice as much on the sixth day so you don't have to work for it on the seventh or pick it up. The manna. He's, he's saying, and you know guys, the manna, that was a total prefiguring and pointing to Christ, the ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Jesus being the true bread from heaven. He is revealing himself as the fulfillment of what was revealed in Exodus 16 back there. And the people are just, again, they're, they're falling short. And so he says, Moses didn't give bread. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. That's what it says in verse 33. And the people's response, again, they say, we'll take it always. I, I, and I picture him saying, can we pre-order? Because, yeah, you want to give us this bread? Fantastic. And, you know, they're, you know, little cartoon bubbles over their head, lots of loaves. <laughs> and Jesus essentially lets them know this bread that he's talking about is not a commodity. It's a person. He says, I am 
covenant name of, name of God, very emphatic in the original text, the bread of life, the bread of life. Come to me and you'll never be hungry for more. Believe in me and you'll never be thirsty for more. Those are the two emphatic statements he makes to these people. He says, if you come to me, you'll never hunger again. And if you believe in me, you'll never be thirsty for anything else. I will satisfy. And folks, there's a deep longing down in the soul of each one of us, a God-shaped impression in our hearts that only he can fill. I have seen people over the years, and myself included, try to fill that hole with all kinds of garbage. These people want to fill that hole with regular bread. It'll never satisfy. They'll be hungry again. And Jesus is saying, you know, I can satisfy that longing in your soul. I can satisfy that desperate need that you have. Who am I and why am I here? I mean, I can answer the most fundamental questions about life because I am the bread of life. I am the one who can sustain you. I am the one who can nourish you. I, all, you look at all of the qualities of physical bread and you multiply those by infinity and you see those are the qualities that Jesus wants to communicate to each one of us. Beautiful statements here. Wonderful things that, that he's revealing about himself. He says, in verse 36 and, and onward, he says, but you've seen me and you don't believe me. You've seen and you don't believe. Hang on to that. All that the Father gives me will come to me. They will come to me. I won't turn anybody away. And it's the Father's will that I came from heaven to do his will. And here it is. This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son believes and, and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So, He's being very clear, very concise in what he's communicating to these people. That He's not beating them up. I mean, he knows who's going to believe in him, who's not. We'll see that passage this morning. But he's being emphatic on purpose. He's, he keeps reiterating this one point. Do you ever feel like sometimes you need to hear something a whole bunch of times? I, I know sometimes in, in dialogue with my wife, uh, one or the other of us will take turns. We'll say something like 17 different ways to try to get a point across. You know, some of you are chuckling. And that's sort of what Jesus is doing here. He wants to make sure that there is no room at all for error. He wants to make sure there's no room at all for these people to misinterpret him, but they're going to. And I want you to understand, remember I talked about in the Gospel of John in chapter 6 here, that it begins with these 5,000, 15,000 people being fed and then things start to go downhill. They start to decay through this chapter. It's continuing to go into, it's, this is, this is going to end up a train wreck. I mean, this chapter is the first major crisis in, in Jesus' ministry. And yet, we'll see some, some really sh bright and some shining things that come through towards the end of the message this morning. But uh, if you look at this, the hostility is mounting. They, they start out complaining about him, then they end up quarreling over him, and then they end up bailing on him. All because he's telling them the truth. Because the Bible says, it's because I've told you the truth, am I now therefore your enemy? We can fall into that. 
sometimes, you know, talked about, as we study God's word verse by verse, line by line, book by book, through the Bible, we're going to look at the fun stuff. We're going to look at the real blessed stuff. And we're going to look at the hard stuff. And it's not just my opinion. The text says it here. These are hard sayings. Who can hear them, they say. So the people end up complaining about him because he claimed to come down from heaven. They said, isn't this Joe, the carpenter's boy? You know, that guy that we know in Nazareth. And Jesus essentially rebukes him. He says, stop your murmuring. Nobody comes to me unless the Father draws him. And Isaiah 54 says, and they shall all be taught by God. And Jesus actually quotes Isaiah as he's speaking to the people. Noteworthy as we continue on. Verses 29 and 30, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he sent. And therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Verse 35 and 36, And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, yet do not believe. These people are asking Jesus to perform a miracle so that they want him to jump through their hoops. And Jesus doesn't do that. You know, uh, very often I, I hear bad theology. You know, I hear that very often too. But, and, and it's essentially trying to reduce God to this, this, this guy that does our bidding. And there's a lot of bad spiritual junk out there where people are actually bossing God around. You won't get away with it. He will be subservient to no man. He's the sovereign Lord of the universe. And we do well to keep that perspective. Verse 40, and this is the will of him who sent me that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life and I'll raise him up at the last day. You know, there's a great Hebrew parable. I like this. It's, it, it just gives some real clarity. Because, you know, we, we talk about prosperity and these guys want him to prosper them physically. They want him to give him bread and they, you know, they want to have their needs met and all that. I mean, it, and they're reasonable needs. I mean, they're not asking him for, you know, a new Porsche like they were invented back then. It wouldn't do well in the Sea of Galilee anyway. But um, the point is, is they're, they're not asking him for some high fancy thing. They're saying, can we have some more bread? God is likened to a light. This is the parable. Prosperity and blessing is a shadow. If you walk towards the light, prosperity and blessing will follow. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean physical prosperity. God may prosper you spiritually. He may give you spiritual blessings. I love those passages in the New Testament that talk about it, that God's will is to bless us with every spiritual blessing. And he may prosper you physically. He doesn't do that with a lot of people. Kind of ruins people. I love when I see, uh, I've talked with people in the body here, when I see the gift of giving, and that person is a channel through which God pours resources to get them distributed. 
It's never a channel to get stopped up. You know, we should be more like a river instead of a lake to where I kind of stop up those blessings and I kind of hog them to myself. That's not God's will. But when he talks about blessing and prosperity, those are things that God wants to do. He wants to prosper our lives. He wants to bless us. So God is likened to a light. Prosperity and blessing is a shadow. If you walk towards the light, prosperity and blessing will follow. In the same way that you're walking towards the light, your shadow is following behind you. If you turn your back from the light and try to pursue prosperity, you're chasing your shadow and you'll never catch up with it. I just think it's just some great perspective because you know, I, I've been self-employed for most of my adult life. I know what ambition looks like. I know that, that entrepreneurial spirit, you know, and all that. And I have to guard my heart about that, especially when it comes to the things of God. Uh, because godly aspiration can look exactly the same on the outside as selfish ambition. The Bible warns against that. It says, if a man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a good work that he desires to do. And he also talks about a man who is selfishly ambitious towards that. And things won't go so well. At any rate, to pursue prosperity is really where the error comes. It's not that prosperity in itself is bad. But to face the light, to chase the light, to go toward the light, and let those things be in your shadow is really the perspective that we ought to have. Verse 47, now we'll get into the actual text for this morning before I close in prayer. <laughs> Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Now, he doesn't say will have. Have you ever thought about that? Your eternal life began the moment you transacted with God. It began the moment that you said, Lord, I am sorry for my sins. I, I ask you to come in. I release my life to you. However you characterize that, I mean, it's not a magic formula or a magic set of words, but it's an attitude of the heart that all of us need to have in order to have salvation. When, at the moment of my salvation, my eternal life began. He who believes in me has everlasting life. He says in verse 48, I am the bread of life. I am, again, the covenant name of God. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they're dead. I, I just love, I love that particular line. I'm just, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. You guys want bread? Guess what? They're dead. You want to be dead? Go ahead, be dead. But not going to get that kind of bread from me. I'm adding, but I, it's just, your, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. is like, and they're, they're done. Verse 50, and this is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. Again, contrasting physical bread, spiritual bread, the bread I want to give you, the bread you want. Don't be careful for what you want because if I just give you that, you're going to be lost for eternity. If he stopped there and he just decided to do their bidding to be this little cosmic bellhop, your floor, sir, you know, all that, it would have short-circuited everything. 
So these people genuinely don't know what they want and they don't see their need. Very often as we go through life, we deal with people who do not see their need. They see perhaps a nice, comfy, cushy life. You know, they got the nice home and the car and, and the career path and, you know, the IRA and all of the stuff. On the basis of God's word, I will submit to you, that is an illusion. It's an illusion. It's going to go away. The only thing that's going to last is my relationship with him. Nothing's getting out of this world except for my soul and the word of God. That's it. It's just so easy to fall into this stuff, guys. I'm, I'm being very open with you. I, I fall into this stuff. And I think if I do, you probably do too. It's so easy. You, you guys know the, the, the movie where uh, the guy's talking, I think he's talking to a dog. It's some cartoon thing. And in the middle of his, every, like half of his sentence, the, the dog goes, squirrel. And, he, and he's like looking off in the other. And it, it's like, that's what life does to us. Is we're, we're going along and then something shiny catches our little magpie eyes and we're like, oh, I'll focus on that. I got to have that. It's all going to burn. It's all going to come to nothing. The older I get, the more I realize that. I still got some miles on me. Don't, don't get me wrong. But you know, the, the older I get, the, the more I realize this stuff is temporary. This life, the Bible says, is a vapor. It appears for a moment and phew, it's gone. So that begs the question, what am I doing with this life? What am I doing to, to invest in God's kingdom? What am I doing to be able to say in that day, Lord, I did the things that you put before me to do. I want so much to hear those words, good and faithful, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And, and to get that crown of righteousness, then I'll take off and I'll just throw it right back at Jesus' feet because it's his righteousness anyway. I don't have any way that I can stand before him other than through his righteousness. But that's what he wants to give us because everything else is going to die. He says, I'm the true bread that comes down from heaven that you can eat and not die. We get into our pursuits of things. Just kind of something funny happened to me this week. Um, I was laying on, on the couch, half dead with the flu, and and, and just like, and watching television, just kind of mindlessly watching TV. And this commercial came on, and it was for men's shampoo. And it, it said, this shampoo is pretty remarkable because you don't get to darken your hair and get rid of gray by dyeing your hair. You can do it a little teeny bit at a time. Nobody will notice. And every time you shampoo your hair, it gets a little bit darker and a little bit more gray is gone. And they showed this guy, you know, kind of time-lapse thing. And I actually was sitting there and I perked up and I went, wow, that's cool. I thought about getting a pen and writing it down and then I remembered, I don't have enough hair to do that with. <laughs> this body is going to die. I'm telling you. And, and you know, and, and what the media tries to do and, and what our culture tries to do is to put things forth to where you look better when you die, but you're still going to die. Uh, anyway, 
it was just something that it, it just it hit my funny bone as I looked in retrospect. It's like I came out of my flu-induced fog and went, oh, that was really silly, John. <laughs> anyway, it's spiritual bread that he's offering, not physical bread. Manna was a shadow, a prefiguring of Christ. And verse 51, he says, I'm the living bread which came down from heaven. I'm going to have to step on it if I'm going to finish this. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Now, the conversation is getting stranger and more strained as he goes here. Now, he's not just talking about being bread kind of metaphorically. I can, I can get that. I can buy that, Jesus. You know, you're talking about, eh, it's not physical bread. There's some kind of mystical thing you're talking about here. Now you're talking about it's your flesh. It's your actual flesh. If you were Jewish, you would have really perked up with this statement. I mean, it is not a friendly statement to the Jewish mind. As they looked at it, they would plug this into the sacrificial system because when you talk about flesh and you talk about, uh, he's saying, I'm going to give this bread and this bread that I'm giving is my flesh. Uh, they didn't, you know, when they sacrificed animals in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, they only took a portion of the animal and actually put it, in, and put it on the altar. The rest of it got split up between the people who had done the sacrifice. The, 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 the priests ate part of it. Part, they sort of got their kickback on it. And, and then the worshipers would eat it as well. And, and so they're looking at this and they're starting to think, okay, now Jesus is kind of putting himself in that place. If you look at the book of Hebrews, you see he very definitely puts himself in that place. And, I mean, and not just a little bit. I mean, he outlines his life and ministry as being the sacrifice. Um, but it says that the Jews, when he said that, they began quarreling among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? When they're heating up more and more because they've now, they've gone from complaining to quarreling. And it's as though that wasn't bad enough. Jesus essentially goes, well, you think that's tough? Try this, verse 53. And Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. That is the most wretched, stumbling, horrific thing that a Jewish mind could deal with. You look back in the Old Covenant and you think about what the Jews had to do with dead bodies. They were absolutely, absolutely, anything necrotic, uh, which means dead tissue, necrotic tissue is dead tissue. Anything, and that's the Greek word for that, is anything at all was absolutely forbidden. You are utterly unclean and you got to go through a lot of ceremony to get cleaned back up if you even touch a dead body. As if that wasn't bad enough. Blood? These guys were forbidden from eating meat that had not been drained properly. I mean, blood was completely off the table. Interesting thing about blood. The Old Testament tells us the life is in the blood. And God reserved that for himself. That's why the, the blood of the sacrifice was so important in these people's minds. But it wasn't for them. And that was for the sacrifice. 
And when he says, you've got to eat my body and drink my blood, that, to, to use an old expression, really freaked these guys out. I mean, they were completely undone by this because they translated in the physical realm. They didn't take the time to look further and say, what is Jesus talking about in the spiritual realm and elevate their view? Again, we've looked at that over and over in the Gospel of John. Jesus says something physical. Destroy this body, I'll raise it up three days. It took 46 years to build the temple. Jesus, what are you talking? You know, it, 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 over and over and over again, we've looked at it. And this is like the ultimate. And he throws this out there. He says, that's it. He says in verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Oh, great. Implied, I don't have eternal life unless I eat your body and drink your blood? Are you serious? What kind of talk is this? And I'll raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I, I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. See, he's still talking about bread. Not as your fathers ate, in the, ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Verse 59, these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Tough stuff. Things went, as far as this crowd goes, they just went from bad to worse. They just went from, I mean, remember, he started out with 5,000 men. By the end of the chapter, he ends up with 11. And we see that he did it on purpose. Verse 60, Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? It wasn't hard because it was difficult to understand. It was hard because they did understand. I submit that to you. They understood exactly what he was saying. They did not like it. They may not have gotten the, the, all of the spiritual significance of what he was saying. They were stumbled by, they got as far as blood and flesh and got very hung up. But I'll submit that they understood enough to say, I, I don't want anything to do with this guy. He's saying that I need to take him in. And if you understand something, I want to share, share something too. This just as a sidelight. This is free. In the first century, if you ate with someone, that was considered kind of a sacred thing. If I sat down at the table and we shared food and drink together, it was considered, there was, there was sort of a metaphysical property to that, and it was considered that we became one with each other, and that as we ate of the same substance, that we became one. What Jesus is talking about here truly is he's talking about becoming one with the people that want him as he is, that want the true bread from heaven. He's not talking about physical stuff. If I go down to the store and I pick up a, a loaf of bread, I love that Dave's Killer Bread. You guys like that stuff? That's good stuff. Anyway, um, if I go down and I pick up a loaf of bread, okay, that's a sideline. But 
And I set it down on the table and I start to eat this bread. And you're sitting at the table and I say, you know, through eating this bread, I am becoming one with God. And the only way that you can become one with God is to eat this bread too. And you choose not to. And, and, and let's just, and I'm stretching, I know, but you choose not to. Are you one with God because you're sitting at the table with me? No. This is an individual thing. Jesus made this whole salvation thing individual. It was a group. It was the nation of Israel. And those faithful within the nation of Israel who died sort of on credit, the ones who died looking for Messiah, the ones who died living out the covenant, were the ones who were preserved. But Jesus takes this whole nationalistic thing and he makes, because the body of Christ is, yeah, it's the largest living thing on earth. And it's a group. We're a group, but we're a group of individuals. Salvation isn't offered to a group. Salvation isn't offered to my kids just by virtue of the fact that they're my kids. They got to eat the bread too. And there's a point to all this. Jesus is making this very personal with these people. I can't eat this bread of life and share it with my wife. My wife has to eat this bread of life too. Verse 61, and when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? When I ascend to heaven by way of the cross, are you going to be offended at that? That's essentially what he's saying. My ascension is proof this is not physical eating and drinking. I mean, he had to, again, he had to clarify it. He's bringing a sharper focus to this. And verse 63 is proof. Verse 63 is actually pivotal. It's, it's, it's critical in our understanding of this entire, entire chapter. Verses 63 and 70 are really the two verses that tie everything together for us. Uh, verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life and the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. I am not talking about physical bread. Stop asking me for physical bread. I'm not talking about that, gang. I am talking about spiritual bread. I am talking about spiritual nourishment. I am talking about you coming to me. I'm talking about you believing in me. I'm talking about you seeing and believing. And then he goes on further in other places. He says, blessed who hasn't seen and yet believes. That's us. Because this is so important that we understand he is the bread of life. And it's not just this willy-nilly doctrine that we believe in the Christian church. It's the substance of our relationship with Christ. You look at the flesh, his body. I think it speaks of sacrifice and redemption. He says, eat my flesh, partake of my sacrifice and the redemption that's guaranteed through that sacrifice. 
And they look at the blood. I think it speaks of belonging to him, of drinking him in. He says, you must drink my blood. You must take my life into the very center of your being. And that life of mine is a life which belongs to God. When Jesus said we must drink his blood, he meant that we must take his life into the very core of our hearts. That's the point. It's the point he's making with these people. It's the point he makes with us. Verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. Hang on to that. He's making a reference to Judas here. He knew ahead of time. That's why he, he ties it to verse 65. He says, And therefore I said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father, because he is emptying the place as he speaks here. People are leaving. They're probably, probably already walking off. I don't want anything to do with this guy. He's talking about blood. He's talking about flesh. I, I can't handle this. I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to listen to him anymore. Verse 66, and from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And Jesus said to the 12, this is a sifting that's going on now. Do you also want to go away? I love verse 68, but Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I love that. I I just, you know, if there's anything that I want to hang my hat on in this whole chapter, it's that. Peter says the same thing in Matthew 16. There, uh, when Jesus is talking about founding his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against my church, and blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. Imagine, though, these guys, they were hearing this for the first time, too. This was brand new. I mean, if you read your Bible for a while, if you've been around the church for a while, this isn't new. But put put yourself in the mindset of this is completely foreign. This is completely new to you. And it was stumbling to the people. I I submit to you it was potentially very stumbling to his men. I mean, they're Jewish boys. They understand these things about blood. They understand these things about flesh. But Peter's response is, there is nowhere else to go. We know who you are. We know what you're about. I And you know, I might be missing some of the details, Jesus. But I've come to trust you. I have a dear old friend who told me many years ago, he said, you know, I don't worry about the things I don't understand about Jesus. I worry about the things I do. And I like that. Verse 69, and also we have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered them and said, did I not choose you, the 12, and one of you is a devil? There's Judas again. And he spoke of Judas Iscariot, verse 71, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the 12. So Jesus starts out, 5,000 people, he begins to enter into this dialogue with them. The, 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 the following day over in Capernaum, he, he enters into this dialogue. They chase him around the lake. They come up to him. They say, what, how did you get here? They're trying to figure it out. They never saw him get in a boat. And, and we know that that was miraculous in itself. But, uh, and he basically says, you know, it's, it's not about that. You, you missed it. You missed the sign. 
you ate the sign, you didn't understand it. And he goes all the way through. And as he speaks, things get worse and worse. Yeah, and look at it from the crowd standpoint, from the standpoint of a bunch of people that had come to see him and to hear him say these miraculous things, to see him do these miraculous works. It tells us that before he gave the, the lunch out, uh, that he was healing people and doing all of the things that he normally did when he went out to minister, when he went out to, to serve. And so here he is, everybody's bailed. He doesn't have 12 people. He's very clear here. John inserts Judas in verse 64. Jesus inserts Judas here in verse 70. He calls him a devil. He says, look. And the reason why he tied that, the first mention of Judas to the fact that there's a divine election that goes on. And I'm purposely not going down that road. We will visit that one of these days, talking about uh, free will and predestiny and all of that. Uh, they reconcile beautifully. I don't know what the big deal is with theologians who want to argue about it. But the point is, because both are taught and both are true, oh, I'm going to stop because I'll go into it. Um, but the point is, is that there's a reason that Judas, because I, when I first started studying this, guys, I, I admit, I was like challenged. It's like, why is Judas here? He hasn't even shown up until now he has said nothing it's because jesus knew what he was doing he is stating that he is emptying the place on purpose i believe that verse 70 is a wonderful wonderful portrayal of the sovereignty of God. Let me read what one guy said. He said, you can spend the rest of your life simply seeing problems when you read verse 70. Or you can read verse 70 and see a sanctuary of God's sovereignty. A sanctuary for your soul, soul when all hell breaks loose in your life and you feel like everything is out of control and the devil is winning. As in human terms, that's what it looks like here. You go from 5,000 people to 11. Come on. It's not exactly what we would call a successful evangelism crusade. Instead of seeing only problems, you can see what Jesus offers you. Yes, there is a devil in the ranks, but I put him there. I chose him. He will do my bidding. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. That's what he says in John chapter 10. He is not in charge. I am. Folks, I don't know what you might be dealing with today. But I, I'll tell you, the God that we serve, the Jesus of this Bible that we, that we look at and we study, is far more powerful. He's far more in control than we give him credit for so often. We go through dark circumstances. We go through circumstances sometimes where we start out with 5,000 and end up with 11. We get broadsided by circumstances. We, you know, that phone call that comes, that doctor's appointment that you really didn't want to hear what he had to say, 
those things that we go through, those worrying about our kids, I don't care how old your kids are, you still worry about them. All of those things. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. He is the Lord. He's not just somebody we call Lord, but he is Lord. And this is a great passage because Jesus engineers this whole thing. He wants to challenge these people. What was happening with them is they were processing these miracles and going, great, he fed us. Where's some more food? Instead of saying, great, he fed us. And, and being stretched, being challenged. They weren't. So he lays these things out here on purpose. He says, you know what? You've got to eat my body, drink my blood. How's that? He wanted them to wrestle. They weren't wrestling. They were coming back wanting more food. But he wants them to wrestle. He wants them to struggle with this. He did it on purpose. Often I find myself wrestling over something in my life and I have to come to the realization that Jesus is still on the throne. He is still in charge of the circumstances, even the ones I'm in, as lousy as they look. This is a beautiful passage that reveals the heart of Christ in that way and the sovereignty of God in the middle of difficult stuff, in the middle of challenges, in the middle of spiritual attack, in the middle of the things that we deal with. There he is. And when all hell's breaking loose, he shows up every time. You gotta look for him sometimes, but he's there. Why? Because he loves us. He loves us with a world, an otherworldly love that, that we don't get, but we'll take. I mean, I, I just, I, I don't get the depth of his love. I don't get how all-encompassing it is. But I'll take every bit of it I can get because this life's hard sometimes. And I'm so encouraged when I read passages like this. He says, you know, nobody's going to get out of my hands. No, I'm not going to lose one. Everybody that the Father draws, I'm going to, I'll hang on to and, I'm, and he says that in the middle of these people bailing out on him. He wasn't worried about it. I think if anything, he was probably maybe a little excited about it because these people are going to have to go back and, what did he mean by that? I don't, this is just so odd. I don't get it. And I would just about guarantee you, I mean, it doesn't say in the Bible, so I've got to be careful, that many of these people came back. But when they came back, they weren't looking for bread. They were looking for a Messiah, not according to their own understanding, but as he reveals himself. After the cross, after the resurrection, as those things went forward, he began to reveal himself and the Holy Spirit was poured out. I mean, go through biblical history, go through the, the book of Acts. You see that there are just amazing things that are going on every time you turn around. All because of love. All because he loves you. He loves me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, uh, what a great passage this is. Uh, Lord, uh, just, uh, I pray for each of us, each person in this room, each person perhaps online, Father, that as we consider Jesus, as we consider this thing, eating his flesh, drinking his blood, and see it not as wretched and stumbling, but as a, a beautiful divine invitation to partake of Jesus. And Lord, I don't know where each of us is at in this room this morning. I pray, though, because I know you do. I pray that you would touch our hearts. 
I pray that you would woo us, that you would draw us deeper, that you would perhaps draw us to you for the first time, that we would simply pray that prayer, I am so sorry for the life I've led because I've led it without you, and now I invite you to come in and take charge of my life. That's the transaction. Or to come in and take charge of my life in a fresh way. I, I give myself afresh to you today. And I pray, Father, that as each of us does business with you, that we would find you faithful, that we would find that there's nothing outside of your ability to forgive, that we would discover, Lord, that you love us with a love that is so comprehensive that it humbles us, it drives us to our knees in worship, adoration of you. We thank you now for your word. We thank you for this time. We pray that you would bless our fellowship together. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. They all said, Amen. Amen.